This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. Now, what are we going to talk about this week? We are going to talk about what's going on at Boeing. Uh, well, they're having a nightmare, aren't they, with their uh, particular model of aeroplane, which is getting them in lots of trouble with companies like United Airlines, who they do a lot of business with. So we're going to be talking about what's going on there. I really want to talk about, given it's January and loads of people have become obsessed with getting fit and healthy again, I want to talk a bit about what's going on in the fitness industry. I've become a bit obsessed with this. And then we've got lots of questions, I'm sure, from our listeners to answer as well. So we're going to start with Boeing. Uh, It's been in the news a lot because they're having major problems with their planes. And in particular, the 737 MAX 9, which is a single aisle aeroplane used a lot by United Airlines. It's one of their newest models. Uh, Most recently, they had part of the plane suddenly ejecting out. It was like a a kind of door window part of the plane, which suddenly midair flew out. 177 people on board all had the sudden fear of being sucked out of the plane uh, at 16,000 feet. This is where this happened. For those of you who don't know, Boeing develops, manufactures and services commercial aeroplanes. They've uh, more than 10,000 Boeing built commercial jetliners are in service worldwide, which is basically almost half the world fleet and about 90% of the world's cargo is carried on freight Boeing planes as well. So this is a huge business. It's not as big as Airbus, but it's still, they're the two that dominate. Boeing started back in 1914 by a fellow called William Boeing, who was a timber baron from Michigan. And he had a mate who was in the Navy and they decided, they got really into aviation. So they started making their own aeroplanes and they made them from wood and linen originally. They employed the first ever female employee in the company to sew the linen, which they used to try and fly. But then fast forward 100 years and they are having serious problems with their planes. Wooden linen, sustainable materials. They were ahead of the game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So do you want to explain, Robert, the the particular problem is with the 737 MAX 9? We should actually talk about the significance of this accident. It, you know, 
it is amazing and incredibly fortunate that nobody died, yeah. nobody appears to have been seriously injured. But talking to aviation experts about it, they all say it seems amazing when a part of a plane, you know, gets dislodged in in that way to say that they were lucky, but they were lucky. If this sort of de facto door, for example, had gone in the wrong direction and hit one of the tail fins, you know, we would have been into absolute catastrophe and that was a genuine risk. And then secondly, they were very, very lucky that nobody was actually in the seat right next to this gaping hole. But you know, there were eyewitnesses who said, for example, there was a kid very close to the door whose shirt got sucked off. Terrifying. Can you imagine being that kid's mother, right? Uh, and then they were at 16,000 feet where the pressure was just not as great as it would have been had this happened at higher altitude. So what we're looking at here is something that could have led to absolute catastrophe, which is why all those planes have been grounded, why the Federal Aviation Authority in America is looking at this in enormous granular detail to get to the bottom of why this, what was effectively a false door flew off. I think people should understand a little bit about what was the bit of the plane that came out. In planes, we all, we've all been sitting next to the emergency exit. Right. If you want to put more passengers on a plane, what you do is you order from Boeing a fitting that goes where the emergency exit usually goes. And it can't open, although it does have a sort of tilt mechanism. So if it's not plugged properly, it can tilt up. And what happened in this occasion is the plug somehow was not attached properly. And this is this issue about whether the bolts were screwed in properly. And they think what happened, and I'm grateful to Aviation Week, an amazing <laughs> trade publication, I have to say, for this, this insight. What seems to have happened is that because the plugs weren't fitted tightly enough, and this is something that's the subject of ongoing investigation, precisely what happened, the sort of plug flew off and cause this great sort of hole in, in the fuselage. And it is different. I mean, you know, it is important to recognise that this is different from the emergency doors that we sit next to on planes. There doesn't appear at this moment to be a problem with an actual emergency door. And the reason, as I say, why people have these plugs rather than an emergency door, while they ask for this in terms of the specification, is one, you can get more customers on the plane, and two, it is less expensive to service. When you have one of these emergency doors, the servicing costs, they're heavier, first of all, the emergency doors, which adds to the you know the, 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 the payload the plane, and the weight yeah. and the amount of fuel you have to use, and also they are more costly to service. But there are planes in service that are the same model, but with the emergency door that haven't certainly yet being grounded. And and this flight in particular was an Alaskan Airlines one. They've now understandably grounded their fleet and have been looking at them. And today it's just come out to say that they've actually found on quite a lot of these planes, loose bolts. So this is quite a scary manufacturing problem that Boeing are having at the moment. And uh, I saw an interview yesterday with the, the boss of United Airlines who was saying, 
they are really disappointed about this. The Federal Aviation Authority, as you say, is doing an investigation to this. But it sounds like, from, from your brilliant explanation there, Robert, this is about money. And that has been the big criticism of Boeing is their focus on short-term financial gains has put the company under pressure for quality. And there was a, there was a letter in the FT yesterday from a former chief economist at Boeing Commercial Aer- Airplanes who says they have been too focused. This is a bloke called John Griffiths who's written into the Financial Times. And he's saying they have been too focused on short-term financial gains and it's put quality as, as you know, as the cost here. So what everybody's looking at, as you say, is this whole issue of so-called quality assurance. It is whether there are enough checks being done on the plane before it's put into service. And the questions about what went wrong aren't just about Boeing itself. So as you probably know, this particular bit of the plane was subcontracted to a business called Spirit. So this doesn't get Boeing off the hook. But if it was a question of loose bolts, one of the questions is, was the plug fitted properly by Spirit itself? So part of the investigation is on the subcontractor, right? Then there's a question of when this part of the plane is then assembled by Boeing, did they make the right quality assurance checks? And so um, there are questions around the entire supply chain for the Federal Aviation Authority, which is the big investigator here, and of course, for Boeing itself, which has got to reassure customers. But then there's another really interesting question which has been raised, and it's about the nature of the workforce. One of the things that happened at Boeing during COVID was that lots of their more experienced engineers, and this this was widely reported on before this crisis, many of their more experienced engineers left the company. They either retired or they went off and did other things, more secure jobs, maybe better paid jobs. And so Boeing's workforce declined very sharply and has been built up really quite rapidly. And another one of the questions that's being asked is, you know, quite apart from this issue that you've raised, uh, which is, are they too focused on saving money on cost, is whether they have enough really experienced engineers. Because it, it's, it, you know, I know it's different, but when I worked at Black & Decker back in the day, um, a manufacturer... Did you they, work at Black & Decker? I've never heard you say that before. <laughs> when I worked there, we, of course, had suppliers who made component parts for the products, but the onus was on Black & Decker to make sure that the product getting to the customer was of high enough quality. So anything that came in from the supply chain was checked. And given it's an aeroplane, you, you would think that, I don't think you can blame the contractor spirit, can you? Because there's not that many planes out there that you can't go around and check every single detail of it to make sure it's safe. Well, no, it's, ultimately, as you say, it's got Boeing's name on the tin, as it were, and it's therefore Boeing's responsibility. But nonetheless, if you're going to stop this kind of thing happening again, you've also got to know where the initial apparent manufacturing problem arose. Now, it's also important to look at this through the lens of both the airlines who buy planes from Boeing. Now, there is a distinction between these narrow body jets. This is a new generation, this Max series. They are a new generation of narrow body jets. And of course, Boeing's very famous wide body jets. And so if you look at a company like BA, 
they have large numbers of the wide body jets. And I don't think they have any of the narrow body mm. jets. But nonetheless, if, the, if a problem arises with one class of jets, it's, it's going to raise concerns in the minds of all airlines, because yeah. almost all airlines buy from them, and indeed customers. I mean, you have to, you know, we have to put this into the context, of course, which we haven't mentioned, that it wasn't that many years ago, 2018, 2019, when not the Air Max 9, but two of their max generation of planes crashed. Yeah. You know, that then led to an all sorts of reviews of, again, the quality of the plane. So, you know, this is not the first time that that max subset of planes has experienced very serious problems. Yeah, that was 2018, wasn't it? There were two crashes, the Lion Air flight um, and an Ethiopian Airlines flight, and hundreds of people died tragically in those crashes. Uh, and Boeing ended up having to pay out $2.5 billion because of them as well. But isn't there a, a point where a brand, I know 737 is not a, a brand in, in one sense, but a model becomes so tarred by the negativity that you should just forget it. And even if it's, a, you know, the next thing you create is another a model that's vaguely similar, but it's got a different name. Don't you need to do that? Who's going to want to get on a 737 Max at the minute? I'd be like, no, thank you. I'll just wait for the the Airbus one. <laughs> yeah, I also think, frankly, rebranding it isn't going to make any difference. No, what but people like, want to know don't you is, want to forget about want, that model and go and try the next thing? You can't do that I if know, you're an airplane. You know, the, the, I, you know like the development costs of this plane will be so great that, you know, if they wrote off the max line, they would be bust, right? You can't do that. What you have to do is you have to prove that this is a safe plane and they have to prove that to the regulator the and then they have to prove that? that to all of us and, uh, you know... Well, I mean, the answer like, is the was... investigation is going on and the results of that investigation have to be made transparent. I mean, I talked to two airline bosses, people who buy these planes, and they both say that they retain confidence in Boeing, subject, of course, to disclosures about what actually went wrong and then verification that Boeing is taking the steps to prevent these sorts of problems happening again. And the, the biggest nightmare for Boeing and the Federal Aviation Authority, the big regulator here, has not ruled out that this is what they'll find, is that the problem about manufacturing quality assurance, checking that the product is as safe as it should be, will go wider than just this one line yeah. of the air max. You know, the terrifying thing for Boeing, and we don't know if this is going to happen, is whether other planes will be grounded. Mm. Um, now, the other thing which is interesting, though, is, of course, the long lead times that there are. Yeah, because they order them well ahead, don't yeah. they? The so airlines I talking, order again, them I was talking, I was talking to a couple of airline bosses about uh, their current orders for Boeing planes, and they just said to me, look, these planes aren't turning up for five, six years. We assume that by then they'll have sorted this problem out. So they're not in the business now of saying, you know, yikes, we're going to cancel orders. But we should not underestimate that when you ground planes and when you have to refit them, this is enormously expensive, particularly to go back to your point about you know, cost cutting, there is not a lot of fat in Boeing. They haven't got vast numbers of engineers that they can simply deploy to fixing planes that need to be fixed. One of the things I am slightly amazed by in a way is because I looked at its share price today. Its share price has fallen as a result of this, but actually 
it's still roughly where it was a year ago, even though it's fallen from recent highs. I wonder whether investors have slightly got this wrong because this feels like quite a big problem for yeah, Boeing. Yeah, and at the same time, Airbus, who is their main rival, has been beating Boeing, haven't they, on orders and deliveries for some time now. There was that astonishing incident in Japan, if you remember. Now, in that case, you had this extraordinary thing what with the Airbus it? where you know it burst into flames and everybody gets off the plane. So in a safe sense, some would say that is, you know, something that, you know, Airbus should be able to take some credit from, that this plane goes up in flames, all the doors open, people get out and nobody's injured. They're astonishing. You know, certainly nobody killed and injuries apparently not that serious. Right. Should we have a break? Sounds like a good moment. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. Now, you're going to talk about one of your own little business ventures, aren't right. you? Right. So, I, it's January, right? Everyone becomes obsessed, don't they, with going back to the gym or trying to be healthy or doing whatever it is they want to do to to just better their lives in terms of their health. And I am one of them. I hadn't, when we started this podcast, I used to go to the gym loads before we started this podcast. And then for whatever reason, I, I don't know whether it was just the time. Because this is an intellectual workout with me <laughs> and you don't need the physical workout. Yeah, so I haven't been to the gym for ages. And my personal trainer was literally texting me regularly going, come on, you need to come back. So I went back this week and it was just interesting because the guy who, who trains me, we've been talking about setting up a gym where we are up in Newcastle. He's got his own gym, but we've got this idea for another one with this bespoke bit of kit. I'm not going to tell you more than that yet, maybe further down the line. But anyway, gyms are something I've been looking at for some time because you've got all kinds of um, startup gyms now across the country that offer all manner of things. You do Soul Cycle, don't you? This is the one where it's like a spin class on a bike and you've got like disco music and someone shouting at you relentlessly on their bike. And, you, you know, you enjoy that, don't you? Yeah, look, it's an incredibly efficient way to get a bit of exercise. And, you know, one of the trends has been because, you know, many people don't have that much time. Actually, there was a period in my life when I was definitely addicted to going to the gym. How um, often and, did you go? 
I mean, when I was younger, yeah. I mean, I, I I started going to the gym in about, believe it or not, 1990. There was a huge gym in the in the Barbican. Might have been even slightly earlier than that. It was one of those early, really enormous things with all the, you know. And I I must have gone out an hour and a half, two hours a day, sort of five days a week. Whoa. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it was, and it is addictive. I mean, yeah. that endorphin rush is a drug it right? is yeah um, arguably there are worse addictions so I, I'm not remotely as addicted anymore but I did about eight nine years ago I discovered these as you say uh, the brand that's well known is called Soul Cycle, but these these bikes we, we do in a darkened room with you know all sorts of uh, so, as you say from yeah. my generation and disco music and, and, uh, and it, it, it's 45 minutes and it's an amazingly intense yeah, workout and there's lots of like spin-offs from that as well I, there's one in Northern Ireland that I go to which is just you know a girl who set up her own uh, spin group which is very similar to Soul Cycle. but the reason I wanted to talk about it because it's interesting what's happening with these um, businesses and in particular when celebs like yourself Robert get behind them so there's one called F45 that I started doing right now if you're in the north you'll have probably never heard of this because the furthest one in the north is in Harrogate which is why I was thinking oh this is a franchise maybe I should look at opening one of these Further north, F45 is basically, like you say, F45 comes from the it's 45-minute workout class. It's got lots of stations set up. So you go in, there's kit everywhere. So it's and circuit then, training, is yes, it? Yes. The thing with F45 as well is you don't actually need a lot of space for it. So it's not, you know, big gyms with loads of equipment. It's much more like weight-based training and, you know, smaller bits of kit. So if you're someone looking to set one of these up, you know, you don't need a massive amount of space. Like the one I go to in Soho is tiny it's in like an underground little office which can get quite sweaty but hey it works and I quite enjoy it but yes but the, it's the initial outlay you need in terms of equipment and stuff that really adds on the cost to it and the other thing is there's no mirrors there I don't know about you but I hate seeing myself when I'm exercising and, and they kind of market around this this whole idea of you know you're just focused on the actual exercise you're doing rather than what you look like when you're doing it and then the screens rather than instructors so the script there are two instructors normally there but the emphasis is on following what's on the screen in front of you so there'll be a, you know a recording of some fella normally a fella doing the exercise and you just kind of copy it in the station and then the time goes and you move to the next thing and so it's the circuit training you do and I really like it because it's quite anonymous as in you just go in you don't have to talk to anyone which I hate um, <laughs> despite my job and you're going to do that. And this is a this is a business which started in Australia back in 2012. Um, you know, it was a gym in Sydney. They decided to franchise it. Mark Wahlberg, the actor, was a massive fan of it. So he invested into it in 2019. Then they listed in 2021. They were valued at over a billion dollars. Um, and they had all these big ambitions to, to grow. Um, to You know, they wanted to, I think, to grow it to 10,000 locations. And at its peak, it was at about 3,000. Um, they then then brought in people like David Beckham and Cindy Crawford as ambassadors, but then it all went wrong. And I think one of the biggest problems is that I, when I looked into the franchise and how much it was, it was about 200 grand you needed to set up one of these franchises. By the time you paid the franchise fee and then all the branded equipment and tech. Um, so anyway, so obviously I didn't do it, but I was getting calls from them relentlessly and emails trying to get me to this was in 2022 and so yeah they were constantly contacting me and they were even sending at one point I even and given 
definitely, I didn't actually ever speak to anyone. This was all just done online that I was looking into it. Because as soon as I saw the cost, I was like, stuff that. They sent me a message with a gif of a woman falling down a hole. And they were like, are you all right? We're just checking if you still want to join a franchise. Obviously, in the end, setting up an F45 for me, it just looked way too pricey. But I know some people who were running them who were dead happy doing it. Coming back to the business side of this. So David Beckham was, behind, you know, joined in as part of this and got paid a shed load of money but to Funny enough, I once said next to Beckham, it was actually Cycle rather than Soul Cycle, which is the rival to Soul Cycle. I, I wondered at the time, since he was turning up, whether he was trying to invest in Cycle. Who knows? Yeah, but anyway. well, that's it. I mean, he's, he's bit, Barry's boot camp is another one that he's uh, been seen at. Um, anyway, he was brought on as a, another ambassador, but he ended up suing F45 because he never got the money that he was promised. And so this whole, and then the company ended up being delisted as well. Uh, they, you know, put out a profit warning. Their chef price fell by 92%. They got delisted, uh, you know, because they weren't compliant with the listing rules anymore, given how much the value had fallen and everything. But it's, it's just fascinating, this whole thing around, you know, Mark Wahlberg putting his money into it and it all going tits up. It's quite interesting that nobody seems to have built a genuinely big global brand in this in this area. And actually data. I mean, I tried to get a handle on the size of the global market. And, you know, some people say the global market is worth about $100 billion. Others say it's twice that. Um, there's not a lot of what you might call, you know, very reliable information out there. We live in a world where people are much more obsessed with health. It's obviously a big market, but mm. there's a big gap between 200 and 100 in terms of um, estimates. And it's odd to me that it is still so fragmented. I mean, I think, as I understand it, LA Fitness is the biggest company in this space. There's Fitness First, there's LA Fitness, you've got the David Lloyds ones, you've got Bannatines, they're big in the north, Duncan Bannatines. But I'm talking global rather than just yeah. the UK at this point. It feels odd to me that there isn't a very clear global yeah. brand because well, so you'd think you'd be able to commoditize it. You'd think that you'd be able to say, this is the kit that people need. This is the most efficient way. It's just odd to me that, well, that, that there are so many businesses. Soul Cycle did look like it was going to be the big global brand because this is a, a, a business that started in New York. It was set up by two women. And, you know, the prime minister has been seen at Soul Cycles. There was this famous occasion. I think it was, I think a mate of mine was in California and all these sort of security guards turned up at, uh, at, a, at a cell cycle branch and they wondered who the, the sort of celeb was who turned up. And I think it was certainly Rishi Sunak's uh, wife, Akshita, but I think it, was, it may have been Sunak as well. <laughs> well, when, when Jill Biden came over for the coronation, she ended up going to a soul cycle with uh, Rishi's wife Actually, as well. Yeah. yeah so they, they, but anyway, but this was, so this got a whole big cult following soul cycle, but then there was this massive expose about a toxic culture there because like you say about the addiction, the addiction of the, you know, the thrill of being at the gym, which there's also lots of people who do not get a thrill out of it, but they became obsessed with the instructors. <laughs> so people were like, you know, you had to, the soul cycle's big thing was you have to audition to be one of our instructors. And then people were like, trying to get the particular bike they wanted and it all got really competitive 
and you know they ended up having this big expose about them and that kind of hit them hard but the big thing that also hit them was what happened with peloton well i was going to say i think that shows the sort of fad element of all of this which is one of the reasons why at the moment we're nowhere near getting a sort of you know, global brand, but it was a huge fashionable thing if you had enough money during COVID. And at that point, uh, Peloton's share price uh, reached more than $160 per share. And, and it's actually sustained pretty high levels for something like a year. But then in the harsh reality of a post-COVID world, uh, the share price has absolutely plummeted and it's now less than $6. So from 160 plus dollars to less than six dollars. That is a descent and a half. Yeah. You know, there was some really interesting rivalry going on between Peloton and SoulCycle. So SoulCycle were doing free classes if you traded in your Peloton <laughs> with them. Um, but yeah, they've been now trying to do all these partnerships as well. So they're, they're doing one now with Lululemon, which actually pushed their share price up a bit in September. Lululemon is, of course, this quite posh at leisure brand who... Interestingly, the founder of it, a fella called Chip Wilson, who's a Canadian businessman, got in a bit of trouble recently because in an interview he said that some women are just too fat to wear leggings. I mean, that is unbelievable. What a twat. Imagine saying that. I mean, I think to use your technical phrase, part of the problem with this industry is it does seem to attract twats. And and that may be one of the reasons there aren't that many really successful businesses. I mean, I have to say, I don't know if you've ever seen it, my all-time, possibly my all-time favourite film is Dodgeball. Have you ever seen Dodgeball? Which is It's it's just a brilliant film about the madness of the gym industry. Uh, If you haven't seen it, you've got to watch it. So um, Peloton now as well, they've done a partnership with TikTok, which is interesting, which is they've just announced recently. And that again, that's pushed up their share price a bit in the last month or so. I know it's massively down compared to COVID times, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes next because that's the, you know more the, again, trying to get in with the influencers and this this viral way of working the gyms. But yeah, I know there are some lovely gyms out there. There's people screaming at their phones now or however you're listening to us going, shut up, we're not a twat, we're a really good gym and wherever. There's also brilliant ones out there, but it's just a fascinating business in terms of, like you say, it's the fad element to it. And that can really kill a business when it looks like it's doing well. And then it turns out it's a fad. So it sounds to me as though in the coming weeks, we will be hearing more from your journey into the health business. Yes, hold tight. There is plans afoot. It's not all just about slime with me, you know. So look, let's move on to questions. And as always, we've got some absolutely brilliant ones. I'm going to kick off with one from James Bannon. And it's about IT skills, a subject very close to your heart. Uh, I wanted to ask about the state of IT skills in the UK. He says, I'm based in Australia and he's been involved in a number of candidate interviews for roles in the UK, Australia and New Zealand. He says he was shocked at the poor skills and experience demonstrated by UK applicants. And he wants to know what's going on in the UK with regards to IT skills and education. It's really interesting, this one, because it's something we were talking about last week on the podcast wasn't it in terms of there being a real problem with not enough people you know particularly in, in government and things without the skills I don't know, I mentioned in Abu Dhabi yeah. they take skills training in schools way, IT skills way more seriously yeah. than we do it's true of Finland it's true of lots of other yeah. countries we're so behind the curve in this country when it comes to 
uh, giving young people those skills, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. I remember my IT education at school. You know, we often knew more than the teacher who was teaching it because, you know, you, now most kids, my daughter who's four can easily work her way around an iPad or, a, you know, an iPhone these days. So that I think, you know, often when kids go to school, they're, they're not getting that additional stuff. But anyway, I was talking to quite a few of my mates who were head teachers and teachers about what they think in terms of IT. And one of my mates as head teacher was saying that one of the big problems has been the learning has moved away from IT applications so all that kind of traditional Excel PowerPoint stuff so you do do a bit of that in school but it, apparently it's only about you know it's an hour a week so it's not a massive amount in terms of education but then as you get further on in your age and, and move through the different key stages it goes on to more coding and the computer games making and that type of thing but we're so Which behind the curve say, because as you know because we're now right behind the curve because basically ai can do all the coding yes. for you you don't have to learn coding yeah, anymore so you know you're doing the, the programming and things like that which all sounds really useful but because the type of training they're doing now for it has changed what this head teacher was telling me is it's way more niche computing is much more niche so therefore attracts fewer students to do it and they're really struggling as well to get computing teachers so they're saying it th there's this whole problem now with it, it not being something that kids want to do because of the way it's marketed I guess is you know you're, you're going to learn how to program and do algorithms rather than we're going to teach you all the skills you need to do any job in the future. I mean the thing that I think just to reinforce what I made you about how AI you know will do the coding for you, for example, you know, and we'll help you write programs. Well, everybody, every kid ought to have access to generative AI. Every kid ought to either own or be given a device that allows them to use AI, and it should be utterly integrated into the program. And, if, you know, if I were a political party going into the general, you know, running a political party in the general election, my big promise would be you know, every kid having access to AI from a pretty early age yeah. in schools. And this is happening in other parts of the world. And it is sort of a disgrace that it's not happening here. Yeah, because obviously kids now are using way more apps for their learning. So, you know, now in schools, everything, I, every kind of bit of information I get about my daughter is on, you know, a site called Tapestry where they, you know, give us information and all that. But you've also got things like Spark Maths, which helps kids doing their homework or Google Classroom, Microsoft Teams. All of these things are being used now. But you've just got a government announce that it's giving more power to schools to ban smartphones yeah. in the classroom, which is mad because actually you want kids to integrate things like smartphones and, and iPads and all forms of laptops into the learning. I totally agree with you. And it shouldn't just be the lessons need to be more focused around teaching as well on this rather than just here's an application which you need to use. I guess the IT curriculum basically doesn't prepare them for the world of work, but the wider use of IT and education now does. So there needs to be more harmony between the two, I think, is what I'd say. Let's have a look, another question. What, what caught your eye? Oh, so this is um, a bone of contention for a lot of people. So Sam Watson has asked, should the Chancellor and more broadly MPs, be allowed to own property portfolios whilst floating policy proposals that are blatantly inflationary to the already overinflated UK housing market. Sam, you are absolutely right. Uh, there is uh, a real problem in this country with our obsession with investing in housing. We do have an overinflated UK housing market. This has been one of the flaws in the UK economy for years and years and years. 
you know, housing should be uh, not purely an investment. Its primary function is to provide a roof over our heads. But of course, there is not enough affordable housing because of the way that we think of our houses as essentially our pension pots. And, you know, therefore, what it tells you is that the obsession with housing is a reflection of the fact that we don't have enough other vehicles for long-term saving. So, if you're going to deal with the problem of overinflated housing, obviously you've got to deal with planning. You've got to have more houses built, more affordable houses built. You've also got to have other places, other vehicles to direct our savings into. Could be startup companies. It could be, you know, far too little British money is put into the UK stock market. We've talked about that a lot on this program. And then, and this is the bit that is so difficult, is you've got to somehow prepare people for years and years and years of house prices not going up. And that is, you know, think about what would happen to a party leader, Keir Starmer or Rishi Sunak, who stood up in the run-up to the general election and said, my big policy is to depress the price of houses for the next five years. That's what I am promising the nation to make houses more affordable. I mean, do you think any politician could be elected on the basis of telling the British people that British houses were too expensive and he was going to, he or she were going to have policies to yeah. depress them. I guess to Sam's point though, because I was looking at some stats on this, there's a report in The Guardian about it. One in five Tory MPs is a landlord. So it's just hard to stomach, I guess, when these people are making decisions about what's going on in the world and the housing market when you know that they are financially profiting from this. And, you know, obviously there are vested interests. You know, maybe there should be more, you know, more regulation in general of the market, you know, in terms of how many properties you can own. But I don't know. This feels like quite an invasion of fairly basic liberties, but maybe we can return to this. I mean, I do think we, we should probably do a special programme actually on the housing market. Yeah, one of these we, days. we definitely should. Right. Let's wrap things up there. Um, just a reminder, if you do want to send in questions, the rest is money at gmail.com or you can send them through our social media. Just search the rest is money. And yeah, that's it from us. We will speak to you again shortly. Bye See bye. you soon. <laughs>